0: We'd like to thank LawPay for their support of this show. LawPay's online payment solution was developed specifically for lawyers to correctly separate earned and unearned fees so you can accept credit cards in compliance with ABA and IOLTA guidelines. A proud member benefit of the State Bar of Texas, LawPay is trusted by more than 50,000 lawyers and integrated with more than 30 practice management solutions. Schedule a demo today at lawpay.com forward slash Texas demo.
1: Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer.
0: Hi, and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast. We've all heard the adage that lawyers are storytellers, whether it be with agreements, pleadings, or briefs serving as our storytelling media. But what happens when the lawyer becomes the story? Well, when that happens, we need a different kind of storyteller. Evan Thomas is a writer and journalist who has reported and edited for the likes of Time and Newsweek. I think he knows how to tell a story. He also taught writing at Harvard and Princeton. Evan is the author of First, the biography of Sandra Day O'Connor, as we all know, the first woman to be nominated and confirmed to serve as a justice on the United States Supreme Court. Evan has been kind enough to join us today from his base in Washington, D.C. Evan, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, so, Evan, first of all, let's talk about you. It sounds like you've had a pretty storied life yourself, reporting for Time and Newsweek. How did you get into journalism? You know, tell us a little bit about, about your background and in, in, in the work you've done. I mean, you must have met some really interesting people along the way.
2: Uh, well, I went to law school, uh, to the University of Virginia Law School, but I decided I wanted to be a journalist and not a lawyer. So I got a job at Time Magazine covering the law and wrote about the Justice Department and the Supreme Court, uh, but then drifted into politics and covered Congress and political campaigns and became the Washington Bureau Chief of Newsweek. And I did that for 10 years and then became an assistant managing editor and then an editor at large. Basically a rewrite guy, really. I, I I wrote more than 100 cover stories for Newsweek. Drawing from other people's reporting, wars, elections, all sorts of stuff. Sometimes a law, but typically not. Meanwhile, I wrote, uh, wrote a lot of books. The Wise Men with Walter Isaacson, biographies of Bobby Kennedy and Nixon, and uh, Eisenhower, and a book about World War II called Sea of Thunder. I wrote 10 books. And so this is my, my 10th book. This came to me because Sandra Day O'Connor thought about doing her memoirs and I was briefly considered uh, as a ghostwriter for them. But I could tell talking to her that she didn't really want to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and in any case, she got dementia. She got uh, right. uh, she started to get Alzheimer's. Right, so the right. family decided, let's do this as a biography, and, and that's, how, that's
0: how this book began. Do you know how they found you?
2: I was the author with a law degree who was working with her editor, Kate Medina, at Random House. Random House was her publisher for The Lazy Bee. Uh, I had done Random House books with her before, and uh, they, the family did go down a list of historians and, and sort of check me out a little bit, and uh, then they came to me and said, "Would you do this?" And I said, "Sure."
0: So it's interesting. You said you were the writer with the law degree. So it sounds like it sounds like going to law school actually helped you land the gig. If it if I'm hearing you correctly,
2: it did. I don't want to uh, pretend that I know more law than I actually do because uh, when I went to UVA, that was a long time ago, 1974. But importantly, I took constitutional law from J. Harvey Wilkinson, who is a 4th Circuit court of appeals judge and a really great teacher. And about the only thing I really remember from law school, but I did remember it, was the 14th Amendment. And that's a lot of what Supreme Court justices do, at least in the cases that are memorable. In the case of Matter, that's where the action is. And so that I did, you know, uh, the idea of strict scrutiny, that kind of thing, that was not a foreign concept to me. So that was important to me. Also, my wife, uh, OC, who I met in civil procedure class at UVA, she was a longtime lawyer and she worked with me on this book. We had access to the justices' papers. This is an important thing because if you're writing about a Supreme Court justice, yes, justices justify themselves by their opinions. But a lot of what they do is secret.
0: and That's interesting. We were okay.
2: given—she uh, wrote a letter to her—several things. She wrote a letter to her clerks and to her colleagues mm-hmm. asking that they talk to us. So we interviewed 94 of her 108 law clerks.
0: Really? and wow. We interviewed
2: seven justices, and we had mm-hmm. access to all of her court papers for the first 10 years until there was a sitting justice—in this case, Justice Thomas— So we had a lot of exposure to the actual work product. We also had her diary, and we had her husband's diary. That was a lot of
0: material. I noticed that in the book, there are many points at which you write about what her diary entries say, and then you kind of juxtapose that with what may have been said publicly. So for example, there's a point in the book where you're describing her confirmation process, or the process of where she got appointed and got confirmed. And there's this this one story I remember vividly kind of noting where she was visited by a couple of Justice Department lawyers. I think it was Ken Starr and Jonathan Rose. And at the end of it, John O'Connor, Justice O'Connor's husband, tells her, look, I think it sounds like this thing is wrapped up. And Justice O'Connor said, yeah, I agree. But then years later, when she's reciting the story of her appointment, she expresses a lot of surprise at the fact that she was ultimately elevated to the Supreme Court. So it sounds like you did a very lawyerly thing. You found a possible contradiction or maybe just a difference in memory. It was interesting that, that you were able to juxtapose that.
2: Deal with this, as you say. Trial lawyers deal with this all the time, where they're, you, know, you have evidence from different quarters, and it's not consistent. In this case, we have a contemporaneous document, her husband's diary, quoting her. And yet in the story that she tells, she goes a week later, goes to Washington. She sees the president even after the interview. She gets on the plane. She thinks, no way. I'm not going to get this job. Well, how do you square her recollection years later of her saying that she got on the plane? and Gee, I, I don't believe I'm going to get this job with the contemporaneous document. This is a problem that juries confront all the time. Mm-hmm. So here's, here's the way I, I deal with this. Sure, I think, I think it's absolutely, I'm sure that, that O'Connor, the husband, said you're in. And I'm sure she agreed with him. But people operate on many levels. You, you know this in your own life. Sure. What you may know to be true in the moment, you sort of can't quite believe. She's a woman who's been all her life had to overcome tremendous obstacles. She's a the top of her class at Stanford Law School, and she applies to 40 law firms. She gets one interview, and they ask her how well she can type. It's for a legal secretary. Jeff. Right, so, right. you know, all of her life she's had to beat her head. So come the moment when she's about to be elevated to the Supreme Court, she really can't quite believe it, even though she knows it objectively to be true. Somewhere in her heart she just can't believe it. So I don't think it actually is inconsistent. I think it's just I don't think she's telling a different tale. I think she just saw this on two levels. I think it's extremely human.
0: It was interesting too, you know, with the with the visit from Ken Starr and Jonathan Rose. (laughs) And and I have to I have to compliment you on this. You did a great job of reciting this meeting where they come in and they're they're sitting on twin couches facing one another. And, you know, John O'Connor is sitting next to Sandra Day O'Connor. And then she gets up, and I think the words from the journal, from John O'Connor's journal, was that she got up and she fixed lunch. And here in Texas, we say fixed lunch all the time. So she went and fixed lunch. She comes out with a salmon moose that apparently just absolutely floored Star and Rose. And so there was another kind of interesting juxtaposition. And I guess maybe that, that seems to be the theme of her life. There's these interesting kind of, at least... What appear to be contradictions. On the one hand, she's expressing her disbelief at her being elevated. And then on the other hand, she's telling her husband, yeah, I think we got this, we got this wrapped. And then on and then you kind of take a parallel where on the one hand, she's this progressive, ahead of her time woman who's, as you said, top of the class at Stanford. She's she's a justice, you know, in, in Arizona. She'd been a legislator, she's she's obviously a very accomplished woman, especially for that time. And then she's going and she's fixing lunch. How, how do you square that?
2: <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you an anecdote. In this very small world of Washington, as it happens, right. in church I often sit next to John Rose, who was one of the two interviewers. Sure. Okay. And he first told me this story. And yeah. I just couldn't believe it. He said, I, I couldn't be-. John Rose is a 65-year-old Harvard Law School educated, big-time lawyer in Washington now.
0: Right. And right. he
2: said, I just couldn't believe it. I, you know, I couldn't believe that she makes a salmon moose. He was as, as kind of astonished as you were. And it's just that she liked to confound her, you know, that expression, confound your enemies. They're not enemies. But she, I think it gave her a kind of secret pleasure to show these guys that she could talk about constitutional law all morning, right, on the fine right. points of the law and get up and whip out at great lunch. She's doing that. She's showing off. She's doing that on purpose. For one thing, they, she knows, I think, instinctively without it ever having to be spelled out that Ronald Reagan does not want a flaming feminist as the first justice on the Supreme Court. He wants a traditional woman who is also a brilliant lawyer. He wants somebody who is both. And she'd been able to do that all her life. She valued things that we associate with, you know, gender roles, I guess, what we mm-hmm. associate with women you know, being a good cook and taking sure. care of people, all of those kind of conventional things. Those were important to her. When she became a Supreme Court justice, every Saturday she would meet with her law clerks. You know, each justice has four law clerks, and they would discuss their bench memos, you know, how are we going to vote on this case. She would make them lunch beforehand, Tex-Mex. She would make them, you know, pots of chili. Again, on the Supreme Court, and this is actually really important, when she gets to the U.S. Supreme Court, the court has lunch uh, usually once a week.
0: And she gets right. there,
2: and only four other justices even show up for lunch.
0: I love this story, yeah.
2: Well, w- w- where is everybody, you know? Right. Uh, now, this is 1981. The, the book The Brethren has just come out, which written mm. by Bob Woodward and exposed at the Supreme Court. The justices don't trust each other. They're not <laughs> sure who the leaker is. So that's... And, and also, you know, in the Supreme Court, I uh, your, your listeners will understand this. These, these guys don't all get along. They were right. In those days, all guys. They are appointed for life. They kind of have to get along, but that doesn't mean they like
0: each other. They communicated via memo, right? Not by
2: speech. They are not hanging around in the halls talking to each other. For one thing, memos—and again, your lawyer audience will appreciate this—a written memo is more precise. Sure. You use words of art, right? So there's right. less misunderstanding than there is by conversation. That's, right. the, I think, the main reason why they talk by memo. But it's also—it's a very formal place. And, again, you know, they don't, they're do not they not all pals. Now, she understood that. She was not pals with all them either. But she made them, I love this detail, she made them come to lunch. She would show up in their chambers, just as Sotomayor told me that she learned about this. She mm. would show up in their chambers before lunch and just and sit there until they came. And by the 1990s, she had them all come to lunch. And now, it, 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 they're not talking cases. They're talking right. sports, novels, literature. But they get to know each other a little bit, and it's just a much better way, she understood the need for civility. She understood the need for civil relations between the justices, and she brought that, brought that The court. You could say that's a joke. that's a woman's thing. Well, okay, maybe it is, but, is she, but in it, whatever it is, it worked.
0: I'm sort of struck by the irony of you and I, you know, two guys talking about feminism, you know, especially in the in the 1980s. You know, it's I, I'm I'm sure somebody's going to pick up on that and say, where did the two of you get off talking about feminism? But
2: it, well, that, I, listen, I, I I appreciate the irony of this and also the awkwardness of it. My wife, I mentioned earlier, my wife was deeply involved in writing this book. She's always helped me on my books, but more in this one right. because she's a, look, not, she's a woman. You know, and she understood in many ways. My my wife, Osi, went to Stanford, was from the West, from California. You know, she instinctively understood Justice O'Connor better than I did. And that's one reason why she was so If you read the book and read the acknowledgments, I effusively thank her. And I'm not just laying it on. I really needed her because, you know, just as you pointed out, what are a couple of guys doing trying to explain feminism in the 1980s? Well, my wife understood it.
0: Well I guess maybe it's it's also important because ultimately it was a room full of guys who nominated her to the Supreme Court and helped usher her in. So as you look back and maybe this is an unfair question given that given that we are a couple of guys and you know what do we know about this but when you look at the issues like feminism and you know now especially in the law we are we're trying very hard to improve diversity and inclusion and you know get a broader spectrum of our society represented, you know, at the highest echelons of the legal practice. So, what do you think was the key, maybe at that time? You know, I, I know President Reagan had campaigned on getting a woman to be a Supreme Court justice, and that, and he took that very seriously. And that's why his, you know, his first nomination right out the gate was a woman, and it turned out to be Sandra Day O'Connor. So he made a very good choice. But, you know, how do you think these movements, like feminism, or you know, trying to eradicate racism. How do those sort of take foot and how do they sort of build up in crescendo versus maybe other movements that don't quite take on the same center stage in our society? Yeah.
2: I mean it's very hard to change norms. And there's sort of just off the top of my head here, a couple of things ago. One way is like a war is to just smash through, you know, break down the walls. Some of your listeners will remember Bella Abzug. You know the wave of feminism of the early late '60s and early '70s. Sure. Some of those kind of pretty direct frontal assaults. You know, burning your bra—that was a—you know—that sounds kind of creepy and weird now, but that was a. They talked about the women's lib and burning bra burners and all that, and it was very kind of a frontal assault. Now that was offensive to a lot of people. You know, it worked in a way; it got right. people's attention, right? Right. And it was and and it was important. But, if, of course, it bred a reaction. People will also remember Phyllis Shafley and, and the backlash that occurred in the 70s. And that's how the moral majority gets going, partly. And so, you know, these frontal assaults, every revolution creates a counter-revolution. Mm-hmm. So that's, that, that's the risk of the frontal assault. But there's another approach, and that's much more incremental and sort of one step. And Justice O'Connor is more in the second group where she realizes that you can create more trouble for yourself by not being kind of shrewd and incremental. I'll give you an example, an important example. Sure. When she's at this Arizona State Legislature, mm-hmm. the Equal Rights Amendment is coming up. And this is mm-hmm. almost non-controversial in the late 60s. You know, but to amend the Constitution, you have to have, I guess, what's two-thirds of the state's. So, and it looks like it's going to pass. Mm-hmm. It gets to Arizona. And Justice O'Connor, she's in the She introduces it. And then she's majority leader, first ever woman majority leader, anywhere. Right. She lets it die in committee. Why? Because if she knows it's not going to pass. And instead, so she's being practical. She's, of course, the feminists feel betrayed by her. What are you doing? Are you selling out to get a judgeship? Why are you letting this die? Mm-hmm. Her response, is she does it locally. She uses her power to change every single statute in the state of Arizona that has a gender discriminatory aspect to it. There are dozens of them. She does Mm -hmm. all that locally because she can get that done. And she knows she's being practical. Instead of breaking her pick on the ERA, which was going to lose on the floor, which might make her feel good and get Mm -hmm. on cable, they didn't have cable TV then, but you know, might put on a big show. Instead she's practical, let's do this locally. And that's very much her. you know. Do it incrementally, do it locally, step by step. Don't make unnecessary enemies, but get it
0: done. Another story I, I read in the book, and by the way, I have to, and I promised the listeners you did not pay me to say this, but the book is very well written. I, I got to compliment you on this. And And I guess I'm sort of beaming with pride at the fact that you went to law school. So I like to think that maybe the legal training had something to do with it. But, you know, I love the story in there. Well,
2: it does. It does. It does. Oh. I mean, people forget about—one thing about legal training it teaches you how to get to the point. Well, And, and that's, I, I, yeah. I found my legal training to be invaluable. In
0: well, and it's, it was interesting. There was this one story you told in there about how when she was majority leader in the Arizona legislature, she would host these— they weren't really barbecues, but they were these social functions where she would, she would ply the members of both parties with Mexican food and, as she put it, beer, lots and lots of beer, and she would bring them together and try to break down barriers that way, and a lot of times that would, that would lead to compromise that otherwise might not happen if everybody just stayed entrenched in their respective camps. So it sounds like this incremental approach is something that either was kind of, it was just part of her, or it's something she learned along the way.
2: I think it's both. I mean, uh, uh, you always look to somebody's early years in their childhood. Her father, who was a, a cattle rancher, she grew up on a cattle ranch. Of,
0: right. uh The Lazy
2: sixty thousand acres. a Lazy Bee.
0: <laughs> and that's wow. a
2: tough male world. And her her dad was a tough man, a man's man, mm. and you know, a kind of a brute force guy in a way. But uh, well, actually, that's not quite right. He was, uh, but he was a strong personality. Her mother was very feminine, very feminine, and always worked, even in this dusty ranch, always wore dresses and hose and fancy shoes and subscribed to Vogue and all that. She learned from both of them. She learned from her father how to be practical and tough and stoical and self-reliant. From her mom, though, she learned. <laughs> her dad was a bit of a bully. Mm. And he'd have a drink or two at night and go in and go kind of try to provoke her mom And her mom was very deft about it. She didn't, she wasn't passive, but she didn't get into stupid fights. And she avoided ego fights with him. And Sandra learned from watching her mother how to not take the bait, not be provoked, not get into dumb, chest-butting, ego-butting, you know, fights, but just, you know, walk away from the stupid fights. Pick your fights. Pick your fights. And, you know, she would. There was in the legislature, I love this story. She did have a nemesis, a guy named Goodwin, who was a drunk, who was the <laughs> House Appropriations Committee chairman, but a drunk okay. by 10 a.m. drunk. Sure. She calls him on it. And he says, ah, oh, man, if you were a man, I would punch you in the nose. And she said, if you were a man, you could. <laughs> you <know. laughs> Get it? Uh, so when she needed to be, she could be pretty sharp. Ouch. But uh, that was a rare, that story, I love to tell that story, but that's actually a one-off. That's really not what she usually did. She usually worked around
0: the problem. It almost sounds, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like the way you've written first and the way you've described O'Connor, and honestly, I can't tell which of of these it is. I can't tell if you're just trying to tell the story as it is, or if you're trying to give us a lesson in civility and how to get things done in a more effective way, you know, maybe for, for our generation and future generations. Which of those would it be? Is it column A or column B or some combination?
2: Both, both. I mean, the cliche for journalists is show, don't tell, right? So I'm, right. Not, I'm not delivering a lecture here on how you, I'm not wagging my finger at good manners. my manners are not very good. I wish I had followed the rules that Justice O'Connor followed, but I am trying to tell a story that has a moral. And the moral is, you, at least in her life, you get further with honey. You know, mm. with with Getty, you know, just there's millions of examples of this that compromise and listening. You know, when she listened to people, her whole body would grow still. She was really listening. Interesting. You now, at the same time, she could be bossy. She could be bossy and abrupt and, and kind of imperious. People are complicated. You know, we yeah. all are. And she was. But she was a very effective person. I mean, the, the, the record doesn't lie. She... In 25 years on the court, she was the swing vote in 330 cases. That's a lot of power. That and absolutely. she liked it. She knew how to exercise
0: it. Where did she learn how to exercise power? Was that, again, from her father, or was that from her work as a lawyer?
2: I think it's all those. I mean, I, her father was like a king on that ranch. All, you know, the cowboys looked to him. There was no law, except for the law that Mr. Day... Her maiden name was Day. Mr. Right. Day, Mr. Day handed down. So she learns that. She learns at Stanford. She takes a course called Western Civilization. They no longer teach that course. I'm sorry to say because it's considered to be too patriarchal and hegemonic and all that politically incorrect stuff. But uh, it was great for her because she learned about the rule of law, and Adams and Jefferson and Madison. She really learned that stuff. So mm-hmm. she really learns about civic engagement in, in college, at Stanford Law School. You know, she's you know, the top of her class. And she's learning, she's always learning. In the legislature, she's learning how to compromise, how to deal with idiots like that guy Goodwin, Mm -hmm. you know, how to be a woman in a man's world. All these are lessons that she's constantly learning.
0: Do you think she would be considered a feminist today? If Sandra Day O'Connor were a contemporary of these times, do you think she would still be considered a feminist? Or do you think making salmon moose and fixing Tex-Mex would be antithetical to that today?
2: She's a little... Puzzling that way. She's not, you know, she's the right. famous person today, is the notorious RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right. who's a more classic sure. feminist activist. I mean, there are two movies made about Absolutely. Justice Ginsburg. They're, they're great movies. I enjoyed them. But that's sort of more what we think of when we think of a feminist. Uh, Sandra O'Connor is a little confounding mm. uh, because she is, in some ways, a conventional woman. When she was running for office, This is going to sound creepy to your listeners, but this is the way people spoke in 1970. When she was running for office in the Arizona legislature, she would say, come to the audience and say, I come to you wearing, with my wedding ring and my bra on. Well, what was she doing there? She was saying very kind of clumsily, in a way, I'm a woman. I'm a conventional woman. I wear a wedding ring. I'm not a bra burner. I'm not some crazy women's liver. She had to do that in order to get elected whatever she personally thought. Now, I think privately she was, I know privately, she was very much cared about women's rights, very much. Uh, and, you know, on the court, she was always a model to her female clerks, and she traveled all over. She was pretty open about it. The way to get ahead for a woman is to get out there put on a good show. She wasn't; She didn't hide the ball, but she didn't do it as a kind of conventional liberal feminist activist. That was just not who she was. One well, thing: she was a Goldwater Republican. I mean, her, her own politics were sort of center right. So uh, there's a long answer to your question, but she doesn't neatly fit into what we think of as a feminist model. I would argue that she did more for women's rights than anybody
0: alive. Well, and, and, and that's the, the theme I kind of got from the pages as as I read them. You know, here's—this <laughs> is interesting. You know, a couple of years ago when Destiny and Power came out, you know, the, the biography of George Bush 41, John Meacham was discussing his work on it, and he said, look, the cardinal sin for a biographer is to, quote, fall in love with your subject. But he said as he read the memoirs and got to know Bush 41— he found himself committing the cardinal sin. He started to really like and respect Bush forty one. I got the impression that you really like Sandra Day O'Connor. You seem to really like her as a person. Is that is that fair? I mean, there was nothing unflattering, really.
2: I didn't start out that way. I, she's a little scary to meet, or she was. Well, she you now she has Alzheimer's now, but when sure. she was in her prime, sure. and she had a long prime, she was uh, formidable. She didn't really trust journalists. I was brought in to be her ghostwriter, maybe, and she wasn't eager to see me, and she was a little chilly with me, and I think other reporters that had that experience, she could be abrupt, especially in her old age. So Mm -hmm. I didn't start out loving her. Also, she has a kind of a prim quality at times to the outside world, and also even a bit of a phony politician's side. Those are all sides I saw superficially at first. They put me off as I got into this. As I got to know her a little bit, and she had to she start to have dementia. So I, I didn't see the full O'Connor personally. Mm. But I certainly saw everybody. I really got to know her sons or three sons. I got to know her law clerks. I got to know her colleagues. As I did that, as my wife and I did that, I really did come to admire her. And, yes, I, I fell prey to the I, – I, John Meacham is a good friend of mine. He was the, uh, was the best man in his wedding. Uh, oh, wow. So I've talked about this. <laughs> I've talked about this a lot with him,
1: sure.
2: uh, and he's right. You know, you've got to be careful as a biographer. You're not supposed to fall in love. But, of course, all biographers who are honest with themselves uh, admit that there is a uh, you form a personal attachment. I'm not uncritical of Justice O'Connor, and I try to be even-handed in the book, but you, do, I, do I admire her? Yes. Do I like her? Yes.
0: One thing that I, as I'm getting to know you— there's something that I think you and Justice O'Connor, you may have a lot in common, but there's one thing that stands out as we've been talking, and that is your spouses. You both seem to have very supportive and powerful spouses. In your case, O.C. is is obviously a very accomplished attorney who's who's helped you put this book together. In Justice O'Connor's case, her husband John, you know, effectively gave up this this powerful, very comfortable you know senior partner position in phoenix to move to washington and as he called it become second fiddle to his wife and so could you comment for a moment about you know maybe these great people that we always read about you know to what extent do their spouses play a role in their greatness and in their accomplishments it sounds like it's pretty significant
2: critically i mean i've written about presidents and where things kind of break down in the marital bedroom there's often the presidency, let's take the most powerful job on the planet. Okay, sure. If the president doesn't have a close relationship with his or her spouse, trouble. Well, you know, Richard Nixon, who I wrote about, he had mostly had a good marriage with Pat, but in the mm. White House, it, it, it deteriorated. He started drinking. She started drinking a little bit, too. They became a part. That hurt Richard Nixon. No question about it. One thing, she would have told him to burn the tapes. <laughs> but she didn't because he didn't ask. So, you know, you look at LBJ and Lady Bird, how important that was to LBJ, even though he was an unfaithful husband and kind of mean to her. They had really, in some ways, had a great marriage. Critically important. Life at the top is lonely. Human beings really aren't meant
0: to do those things alone.
2: They need support, help, companionship, trust. And if you're lucky, you get that from your spouse.
0: So it sounds like both John and Sandra married well, if you look at it from that perspective. They they found people that could that could support themselves.
2: So you know, The book is a, as readers will find, it's a love story. Now, like most love stories, it's not t- completely uncomplicated because John really did have to give up a lot sure. to go to Washington, and his law career was not great there. He didn't really work out at a law firm. He'd been the big man in Phoenix. I mean, right. the big man. Uh, in a kind of a old-fashioned lawyer's way. He was head of the Rotary. He was a head of a couple of hospitals, politically involved. He was great at people keeping of court. His great skill was to say, keep big businesses out of court. But Washington does not have a practice like that. And so he was, I wouldn't say he was a failure, but he was not a success. And that was very tough on his ego. And she understood that. And then when he got Alzheimer's, she did everything she could to care for him even mm-hmm. taking him to her chambers, where he would sleep on the bench on the front hall. But eventually she had to leave the court. She had to leave the court to care for him. She said so. He sacrificed for me. Now I'm going to sacrifice for him. the height of her powers, she resigns from the Supreme Court to take care of him. Within six months, he could barely recognize her. I mean, talk wow. about tragedies. Wow. Uh, and – you know, it's just a heart, it's just a heartbreaking but kind of wonderful
0: story at the same time. So Evan, Evan, one final question that's kind of it's it's unrelated, but it goes back to the book in a way. You know, you've been to law school, you've written now ten books. What do you think is maybe a writing tip that lawyers, you know, practicing lawyers need to learn from people like you? Those who are in, in the journalism field, in the I'll call it the professional storytelling field. What are some writing tips maybe we need to start thinking about that maybe we haven't quite taken to yet?
2: Well, this is presumptuous of me, right? Because uh, I've never stood up in a courtroom, and I, I, I've watched trials, but I've never been. Sure. So this is highly presumptuous. But I would say first, tell a story. And I think so a lot of your listeners already do this. Great sure. trial lawyers are storytellers. So thats I'm not telling, saying anything that they don't already know. But I would definitely say you've got to tell a story. The other thing I think lawyers do, now I understand this because they have to, because the record is important. I sometimes, having been to a couple of trials, think that lawyers overdo it a bit, and they pile on so much detail that the fact finder, either the jury or the judge, might get a little overwhelmed by it all. I know that they're setting a record for appeal and all that, but mm-hmm. I always wonder why trial lawyers can't be a little more concise. This may be naive on my part, but I, I, I just... My business was to be concise, and I've always wondered if maybe some lawyers could not be a little bit more concise in their writing and in their oral presentation. So, you know, one of the cliches, good cliches for writers is omit unnecessary words, as uh, Strunk and White put it. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if lawyers might benefit from that uh, advice as well.
0: Well, you've got a law degree, so you get to call yourself a lawyer, and so you're giving advice to us, and we'll take it as advice from a peer. So, so, you know, thank you for that. I think it's advice that we all struggle with every day when we're writing our briefs or when we're telling our stories. So, you know, I appreciate that. And, you know, great, infor- i
2: mean, I will say that the great ones, the great ones, just one other point. Getting to a point, you know, the really, Sandra Day O'Connor could go through a thousand pages of turgid, complex documents and pick out the point, bang. Chief Justice uh, Roberts told us that when he was, or he argued 40 cases before the Supreme Court. And he always looked to her question first, because it would frame. He would he'd get a sense of where the court was going, what he needed to do. He didn't He didn't obviously aim at her, because it's bad for a advocate to pick out one sure. judge on a uh, panel, but he, he told us he was thinking about her, because she had this unique capacity to get to the point. That is the greatest gift of all.
0: That is interesting. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. I could go on and on, Evan. This is fascinating, but you know, Evan Thomas, thank you for joining us so much. And of course, I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. You know, this podcast, as you know, is brought to you thanks to the generous support of LawPay. So LawPay, as always, thank you for what you do. And if you like what you heard today, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, life's a journey, folks. I'm Rocky Deer signing off for now.
1: If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes.